This episode of Upstream in Perspective is brought to you by IHS Markets Upstream Insight. Our team of industry experts analyze the interplay of geopolitical structures, government priorities, corporate strategies, and global markets and technologies to deliver forward-looking solutions that lead to more informed and efficient decisions. These solutions are available via recurring reports, interactive analytics, robust data sets, and bespoke engagements with experts. Learn more about our offerings at www.ihsmarket.com energy. Welcome to Upstream and Perspective. I'm one of your hosts, Jessica Nelson, joined by my co-host, Hill Vaden. Hill, how are you today? I'm doing well, Jessica. How are you? I'm doing great, and I'm ready to talk a little bit about offshore wind today, if you are. Yeah, absolutely. So offshore wind is seen by many as an emerging low-carbon opportunity where oil and gas firms can leverage competitive advantages of their already established expertise in offshore projects. Um, Somewhat related to that, some of these firms can also reduce greenhouse gas emissions associated with offshore operations by harnessing the wind to power the platforms. Um, Electricity on those offshore platforms most often come from diesel power generators. Um, Now, as we we talk a little bit about the upstream sector, no firm has been more aggressive in offshore than Norway-based Equinor, Um, many of you know formerly as Statoil and they exploit their offshore advantages. In fact, the company has reported recently that it's achieved 40 to 70 percent cost reductions in similar sized projects from 2012 through 2017 and now has a wind portfolio of seven projects in various stages of development across the UK, Norway and United States. So on today's podcast, we have Max Cohen, uh, an IHS market expert in the offshore wind market, and Chris DeLucia is back with us. Um, You may remember Chris leads our research on upstream companies' low-carbon strategies, and they will help us pull this uh, topic uh, into perspective. So Max, uh, let's start with you a little bit. Uh, We know your research, um, your recently published research that falling costs in offshore wind installations have been pretty aggressive over the past several years and generated about three gigawatts per year of new installed capacity. Can you give us a quick overview of that market? Yeah, absolutely. And uh, thank you so much for inviting me on to this podcast. This is great. Can represent the the power and renewables messages here uh, with all of you here today. Um, so yeah, the the market has been growing. Um, Right now, as of year end in 2018, there are about 22 gigawatts of offshore wind power capacity installed. Uh, And that's mostly in Europe. Uh, The two big markets to date have really been the United Kingdom and Germany. Um, But there are some other markets in Europe as well and in Asia. And there's in fact 30 megawatts installed in the United States. So that's just five turbines, six megawatts each. So a very small project, but it does exist uh, in the United States. And then as we're thinking about uh, our outlook, you know, IHS market does forecasting and uh, we have an outlook for offshore wind, just like we do for oil production and oil prices and everything else. And our outlook is that 22 gigawatts is going to grow uh, about 10% per year in terms of CAGR and end up being over 500 gigawatts by 2050. And using really kind of rough back of the envelope calculation, that's about a trillion dollars in investment in the offshore wind industry. And that's around the globe. Um, for context though, you know, 500 gigawatts, wow, big number, right? At 10% per year, huge growth. But in the end, uh, for comparison, um, that's only about three to four percent of what we think the installed capacity of all power generation in the world is going to be. 
And uh, onshore wind will be an order of magnitude bigger as about 13% of capacity and solar will be even higher at about 24% of capacity. So a lot of renewables, offshore wind being a, a little but significant slice of that. Um, Sorry to interrupt, Max. Is that yeah. three to four percent of installed capacity by 2050? Is that up from, or is that continuing at three to four percent that it is today, or is that three to four percent? Right. So by the year 2050, it will be at three to four percent of total installed capacity uh, around the world. Uh, so right now we're starting from less than that, and uh, as by the time we get to 2050, so. Lots of different power generation technologies will be increasing. You know, gas is on the rise. We even have some markets where they're still building new coal, they're still building new nuclear. Um, but there's a rapid deployment of renewables around the world, and that includes offshore wind. And so, of course, when you have everything growing, the exact percent can you know vary from year to year. But in, in general, renewables are growing faster than uh, conventional technologies. And so, uh, by 2050, we'll be getting up to about three to four percent of installed capacity being offshore wind capacity. Okay. And I'll say in the U.S., um, you know, specifically, which is my area that I focus on. Um, We've got states uh, are really leading the way uh, with a bunch of targets for how much offshore wind they'd like to have built. And uh, states from as far north as Massachusetts and down to um, Maryland have targets collectively of about 20 gigawatts by the year 2035. And so our outlook by 2050 is 35 gigawatts in the United States. And again, that's just going to be about, from the US perspective, about 2% of capacity and maybe 3% of megawatt hours generated. But for some regions, it's going to be much more important than others. Obviously, you're not going to have offshore wind in Kansas. There's no coast. So <laughs> <laughs> it's to say that it, it, it really is concentrated mostly in the Northeast because of these state targets and because of some conditions in the Northeast that are favorable to offshore wind that we can certainly get into. So in New England and New York specifically, uh, offshore wind will be about 15% of what's installed, and the um, the amount that it gets used will be even greater. It's, it will have a pretty high capacity factor, as we call it. And so of the actual megawatt hours generated uh, in New England, we're actually looking at a third of the electricity used by people in New England by 2050 coming from offshore wind. And so that's really quite significant for that market. It has a lot of impacts for grid reliability. It cuts into the amount of natural gas being burned. If uh, anyone you know, from the gas business is listening in right now. It, is that uh, pushing out predominantly as offshore wind comes into the Northeast, it's pushing out nat natural gas? Yeah, so in New England in particular and in the Northeast, um, yeah, gas is the fuel that it mostly pushes out. Um, we do have in our outlook that uh, some nuclear power plants uh, will eventually retire over that time period. And you would sort of think that would provide some uplift for natural gas. But in fact, the renewables in the outlook just kind of keep filling in uh, that drop. So we do see the amount of gas generation going down over this time period as offshore wind and other renewables go up. Um, is there something on the Atlantic coast that, that makes, you know, you, you mentioned at the beginning of your talk here that Northern Europe and China, I think, were, were doing pretty, were more aggressive than other parts of the world with offshore wind. If, if the Atlantic U.S. is coming in a perhaps a distant third, what about the West Coast or Gulf Coast or even, you know, Florida Coast? Is there at the state level, is there something unique about the, the, the New England area or, yeah. or wind level? Is the wind different up there? That's a great question. Um, so 
the wind uh, is um, on the Atlantic coast, the wind is strongest in the northeast and the further south you go, uh, the wind gets a little bit less strong. So the economics cannot look quite so great the further south you go. By the time you're down to Florida, you know, it's not a great wind resource. Um, but it's also uh, to some extent um, a political decision. You have uh, these you know, blue states in the northeast that are looking to decarbonize their grid. They don't have a lot of great onshore resource. You know, if you're in the southeast in Georgia, there's a lot of good solar. Um, but if you're in the northeast, you're land constrained, you're maybe transmission constrained, and you have these winter peak hours um, where uh, there's a lot of demand. And actually, the wind uh, offshore happens to blow um, really strongly during those winter peak hours. Um, and you can have these uh, offshore wind projects um, that are close to demand centers like Boston and New York, right offshore, uh, generating power during those areas of peak demand, helping to decarbonize the grid. You don't need to build onshore wind projects or transmission lines that are deemed unsightly on land. Um, so you avoid some of those kind of NIMBY issues or not in my backyard, if you haven't heard that term before. Um, and uh, there are regions where you know power prices are a little bit on the higher side currently, and so the higher cost for offshore wind uh, actually doesn't look you know quite so extreme in comparison. And there's also uh, a case to be made um, for local politicians that you can bring activities to ports uh, that haven't really been used uh, in a number of years in these kind of post-industrial towns along the coastline, like New Bedford and uh, and areas like that. And so you kind of put that all together. And there is this perception in the Northeast that offshore wind provides a lot of value. It may not actually be the cheapest power generating resource, but um, you put it all together and it, it's perceived as providing a lot of value to the economies and the power grid there. And are they able to look to, to, to Northern Europe for a, a blueprint, you know, either politically or economically for, for, for what's working over there as we look for more opportunities on the Atlantic? Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, there's some things that you can bring over from Europe and some things that you can't. So in terms of what you can bring over, uh, you can bring over all the learning and expertise uh, that you've gained in Europe. And so we have a lot of European firms that are setting up in the Northeast. Um, Orsted is the world's largest owner of offshore wind capacity. Um, they have the roots actually as an oil and gas company in Denmark, the former Dong Energy. And uh, they have the most signed contracts to build uh, offshore wind projects in the Northeast US as well. And so you have that kind of um, learning and expertise that's going to be brought over. Some things can be built up like a supply chain. Um, you know, that takes time, but can be done. Um, but there's some things that are always going to be different in the US. You know, the kind of federal system of government and having different state uh, permitting rules versus federal permitting rules, you know, that's always going to be something unique to the United States. Long-term power price forecasts and, you know, the, the cost of financing, these kinds of things will always be unique to the United States. Um, so some things can kind of be brought over and, and some things not so much. And the cost of financing, or I mean, have you seen a, a, a level of enthusiasm from the financial sector, um, you know, different from, say, the ENP, which on our last uh, episode, Jessica and I were talking about the, the lack of enthusiasm from the financial sector for North American oil and gas these days? You know, there are definitely some very interested financial parties. Um, there, uh, there have been a lot of joint ventures in the Northeast U.S. so far, um, and one of those is a 
joint venture where one of the developers brought in a, a company called Copenhagen Infrastructure uh, Partners. Um, you know, so there's definitely uh, an interest in bringing in financial partners, and I, I think there is, particularly for European companies, the returns in the United States can look kind of attractive in comparison, potentially. Um, I don't know, maybe this is a, a good opportunity for, to Chris, for Chris to jump in and talk about some of his recent research on uh, where companies are looking uh, to invest in, in green energy and why. Yeah, Chris. I mean, the, the you know, as Jessica mentioned at, at the top of the uh, the top of the recording here, you know, Equinor has really um, kind of staked a claim on the offshore wind market. You know, given its success with, with offshore uh, oil and gas, and, and been from what we can tell early on, been much more aggressive than than all majors, including other European majors. What what do you see ha having followed Equinor from maybe an upstream perspective for, for for many years? Is there something in their DNA that sets them up well to 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 lead offshore wind? Yeah, definitely. I I think that's an interesting question because we have started to see some some growing interest from from some of the larger oil and gas companies in terms of making their way into the the offshore wind space. But uh, as you said, Equinor really sort of stands out as. Um, as an outlier, as far as the the largest player among the um, among the global integrators, and and I think I think that's exactly right. I think there there is kind of something specific to them, something in their DNA that that really leads to them uh, maintaining that position. And if you, if you think about um, what the company was designed to do, what the company was was built for, it really was to develop um, offshore resources on the Norwegian continental shelf, and that offshore specialization uh, has continued to today. So, you know, there's certainly been some emphasis from the company in terms of, you know, branching out, diversifying the portfolio more broadly, you know, getting into uh, international conventional operations and, and even in the, the U.S. unconventional space. But if you look at their portfolio, uh, it remains firmly centered on, on offshore. Um, and you can see that in terms of their production portfolio. So um, if really you good. look at current if you look at uh, their current portfolio, uh, we estimate about 85% of their total worldwide oil and gas production is from offshore fields. Um, you know, that's uh, th that's a significantly higher share than any of their peers. So if we look at the next highest within the, the global integrated group, uh, that share is somewhere around the mid 60s uh, in terms of uh, the percent of production from offshore resources and that those companies would be uh, ENI and Shell. So, you know, some still some big operators in the the offshore space, but but no one re with really that same uh, level of specialization um, in in terms of um, offshore being uh, you know the, the the sort of the core underlying premise of their portfolio, um, and we see that translating into you know them um, getting into the offshore wind space in scale and in size. Um, you know they they've touted that ability to. Uh, apply that understanding of of offshore development, you know, large scale project management management expertise, um, and and that's sort of been the calling card for them as far as where they've um, looked to grow in the the offshore sector. Um, and so, you know, you you sort of see that in terms of where these companies, especially the larger global integrateds, are starting to get invested in the low carbon space. So, whereas pretty much all of the peers that are participating in the low carbon sector have started to uh, you know, diversify into into a few different sectors, whether it's you know solar or wind or um, storage or mobility or, or whatever. Uh, Equinor is really sort of an outlier as far as uh, choosing to specialize uh, primarily in in offshore wind. You know, certainly there have been uh, other investments they've made in the in the sec uh, in the low carbon sector, whether it's um, uh, solar or uh, you know energy trading. Uh, but for Equinor and their low carbon portfolio, uh, it's really centered on uh, on offshore wind. Um, you know, one. Sorry, Hill, go ahead. 
So what Max mentioned, you know, a second ago about, you know, gas getting backed out, you know, of Northeast um, power generation, you know, as offshore wind kind of ramps up. It, are they seeing this potentially as a hedge uh, for, for, you know, the, the gas markets now? Um, and, and I guess, you know, maybe a second part of that question to Max, is it gas that get backed out of Northern Europe or, or are there other uh, kind of generation um, areas to, to worry about? Yeah, so uh, you know, I think the bigger question is is um, just in terms of diversifying the overall portfolio. So you know, for a lot of these companies, um, maybe a little bit less so for Equinor, but certainly um, some of the other companies among the global integrateds, you know, a growing gas presence is definitely part of the strategy in terms of positioning for the energy transition. So um, so we still see that being a large part of. Uh, the portfolio. So, you know, even if there are maybe these regional dynamics where um, gas is getting pushed out a little bit, uh, we still see LNG, uh, we still see gas and, you know, LNG uh, as well as, um, as, as part of their overall strategic approach to, to positioning for that transition. And, you know, perhaps part of it is a hedge as well. Uh, we, we've seen uh, concerns around long-term um, liquids demand uh, and where growth may be headed for that, um, whether it's uh, a result of you know global economic concerns, or um, you know uh, consumers transitioning sooner away from liquids towards uh, other forms of energy. Um, but uh, we do see you know gas in the mix for these companies as a growing uh, part of the portfolios to to respond to that. You know renewables are are certainly growing um, quickly in Europe. There's a lot of policy support for that, and and um, some of these European companies, they, you know, I, I think there is, you know, a, a cultural aspect to it as well. You have Equinor coming out of Norway. It's a, a more kind of green driven country. Um, you know, they've, um, you know, policy is oriented towards the energy transition. And um, so I think as a, you know, a, a company with, um, you know, close connections to, you know, the national culture, essentially, and the policy—the policy there—it um, might be a little easier for them to transition. I think Orsted is an interesting example in that they were an oil and gas company in Denmark, and they've transitioned completely into offshore wind, and they're um, divesting all of their non-green assets, essentially. Um, you know, I don't think we're going to see that uh, with U.S. oil companies, but it is pretty notable that. Um, you know, the Europeans are the ones who've gone in on offshore wind so far. Um, you know, it's it's not just uh, Equinor. Um, there are others, um, and but we really haven't seen the the U.S. companies uh, jumping in yet in any sort of really meaningful way. And Chris, Max, and that's a that's a good point. Uh, Hill, just one last thing, if I if I may, okay. Could, uh, just to get to your point about you know Equinor and something in their DNA. Uh, I think what Max was just saying is exactly right. And if you look at Equinor in particular, you know you have a, a company here that is 67% owned by the Norwegian government. So you have the largest shareholder that's um, a government that's you know similar to other. Um, you know, governments around the world, especially in Europe, you know, looking to participate in the the energy transition. So, in terms of what that means for Equinor, you know, you have a, a shareholder that's um, you know more willing uh, and and a company that as a result as a result that's more able to um, sort of get more involved in some of these newer technologies uh, to pursue that objective. So, I think that's a key part of the story, specifically for Equinor as well, that allows them to to make that transition and and to you know maybe participate in a bit more scale and also you know get involved uh, a little bit uh, a little bit earlier than some of these other companies um, and if we look at you know uh, Equinor and offshore wind in particular you know this has been a, a, a focus of theirs for for several years you know their first offshore w uh, wind farm uh, Sheringham Shoal came on stream in 2011 
Uh, and that was also the same year that they divested their uh, Norwegian onshore wind portfolio with the objective specifically of, of focusing on offshore. So, you know, this is something that they've been looking at for a while and, and they've been, um, you know, participating in, in, in uh, some significant scale. But let's let's also just kind of back up. There's also one very obvious thing we haven't even mentioned, I don't think, which is crude comes from the North Sea. The home of offshore wind to date is the North Sea. I mean, they're, they're co-located. And as I understand, uh, Equinor has actually used offshore wind. Uh, they are really the leaders, not just in offshore wind as we know it to date, you know, staying in waters that are 60 meters or shallower and, and fixing the turbines to the bottom with the foundation. But they're really at the forefront of floating offshore wind as well, which is you know, the next kind of technological breakthrough potentially on, on the horizon for offshore wind is having floating turbines so you can go out deeper and, and further. Um, and they're at the forefront of that. They have the, a project um, that's 30 megawatts in, in Scotland, I believe, and they're looking for synergies by providing power to their oil and gas platforms in the same geography. And so they're able to make use of that offshore wind and generate it for their own, their own purposes in their, their oil and gas business. And would they generate it for uh, others active in the North Sea as well, or are they worried only about their own uh, equipment? I believe that these floating projects, as I understand, are, you know, they're, they're smaller scale uh, test projects. But, you know, certainly at scale, yeah, uh, Equinor is looking, you know, their, their intention is to be selling power to others. You know, that's what they're, they're active in the United States. They hold leases in the U.S. They have a, uh, an agreement um, with New York State. They want a solicitation to provide power to uh, electric customers in New York State. And so, yeah, they are looking to be not just a self-consumer, but an independent power producer that supplies power to others. And, and that New York uh, agreement, that, that just, that was announced this summer, right? Mm -hmm. Yep, that's recent. So the U.S., it's a little tricky. If you want to build an offshore wind project, first you have to win a lease offshore, which is leased by the federal government. And even if you win that, and that can be quite expensive, some of them uh, recently were sold for over $100 million each, but that's no guarantee that you can build a project. It just gives you the development rights to a certain area offshore. Then the next step is uh, the states are running solicitations uh, to contract uh, offshore wind projects and uh, essentially mandating that utilities or load serving entities in those states buy that power. And so uh, Equinor both successfully uh, won a lease offshore New York, and then uh, more recently successfully won a solicitation from the state of New York to supply power uh, to the residents of New York. So not only do they have the lease, but they've got the guaranteed market after the construction. Exactly, and that's what lets them go ahead. And so they'll have a fixed power price for you know the duration of the contract. Um, and you know typically these contracts would be say, you know, 20 years. Uh, in some cases, they might vary a little bit. They might be 25, but uh, yeah, so that's, um, you have a, a fixed price. Um, you know, there's some nuance, of course, you know, they, there might be an escalator to adjust for inflation, you know, things like that. But essentially, you're getting a fixed price for the, uh, the power that you supply. Okay, so, and Chris, can you compare that maybe to, to an offshore lease for, for oil and gas? And I think uh, Equinor this summer was also a successful bidder in the Gulf of Mexico. Yeah, definitely. Um, you know, they've still been participating. You know, there, there's no question that oil and gas is still the the core part of their business. So, you know, they're still participating in in offshore leases around the world. And and actually, the U.S. Gulf of Mexico is a a big focus area for them as they they look to grow that portfolio. 
But, you know, I, I think there, there is a little bit of difference in terms of how we, we think about these projects, because, you know, oftentimes, even in a mature basin like the um, or mature play like the Gulf of Mexico, you know, maybe a little bit uh, more risky as, as far as the investments that are being made, where where if you're you know bidding on a a, um, a license in, uh, you know, offshore the Gulf of Mexico or, or wherever it may be, you know, even if it's if it's mature, you know, you're still kind of, um, you know, you're still getting in at a at a more uh, higher risk stage where it's up to you to kind of prove up the resource opportunity there and, and uh, if so then develop it from from there you look at it how that sort of opportunity set compares to what Max was just um, outlining there and it's a it's a bit of a, di a different dynamic where you know certainly there's there's no shortage of, of risks on the the offshore uh, wind development side but it's a different risk profile where you know you have that 20 year or whatever it is uh, power purchase agreement you have those those fixed terms. So, um, you know, the, the, the risk profile is a little bit more um, settled in terms of knowing what you're going to get, uh, potentially knowing what prices you're going you're gonna to take in uh, and not being subject to that um, spot price market. So, you know, we, we've talked about this um, on, on uh, prior podcasts and we've certainly published research, uh, research along these lines, but, you know, it does create a bit of an interesting dynamic for companies that are looking to get into, you know, wind or solar generation or whatever it may be, just in terms of, you know, maybe diversifying that risk profile a bit where, you know, maybe the returns proposition that you get from renewables is um, less compelling than what you'd get on the oil and gas side, you know, just to cite Equinor uh, as a specific example there, you know, they're talking about 10% returns on their existing renewables portfolio, you know, maybe you contrast that with what you'd historically expect to see in the oil and gas side of something in the, you know, mid to high teens. So, you know, the, the returns proposition may not be exactly the same as, as what you'd get on oil and gas, but it's also a, a lower risk situation. So, and we've, you know, talked about this, you know, the, the uh, standard deviation of returns on oil and gas is significantly higher than, uh, you know, various other renewable or, or low carbon technologies. So, you know, if you do have companies that are looking to get into that space and they, they start to make investments in, in size in the low carbon segment, it may impact your returns a little bit in terms of integrating a lower return business, but it's also lowering the risk profile of that business as well. So you think about what some of these larger companies are, are looking to do, uh, especially, you know, for the global integrateds like Equinor and, and some of their peers. And it's really all about growing shareholder distributions and, and generating returns. And in order to do that, if you can reduce your reduce your risk profile a bit and, and make your risk profile a little bit smoother, um, that that certainly helps underpin those those shareholder distributions. So, you know, that, that I think that's a pretty important contribution that these businesses can make for these these companies. And is this really a cash flow generator then that, that once in service that, that offshore wind is thrown off pretty healthy cash to support dividend and other you know, more, more predictable activity? So there, so there's that, uh, and um, and there's also, and, and you know, perhaps Max, Max could talk about the the you know the cash flow profile of what we've uh, of of what these businesses uh, look like. You know, we've talked about the returns profile a bit, but it's not only that, but also the diversification aspect. So you know, if you have a portfolio that's you know solely invested in oil and gas, you are much more exposed to the you know the business cycle dynamics that uh, you may experience over time, and we've certainly seen that during the oil price downturn in in 2014 plus. So. Uh, to the extent that you have that more diver diversified business profile, uh, that certainly helps uh, underpin those those shareholder distributions. I love this idea of offshore wind as a, a low risk business. <laughs> <laughs> it's all relative, I guess. Going but. from basically a, an industry that, at least in the United States, pretty, pretty much doesn't exist and saying, oh, it's low risk. Uh, <laughs> but no, it, it's true. I mean, you get these fixed price contracts and, uh, you know, of course, um, 
you know, there are risks, of course. Uh, so, you know, offshore wind, like uh, other renewables, it's um, a very capex intensive industry. And so you're spending a lot of money up front and you are hoping that you will make it up uh, over the course of the life of the project. And so you have your power purchase agreement, of course, that guarantees you your price, but you still have volumetric risk. Uh, you know, you could have a an El Nino year or a La Nina year or whatever, and all of a sudden you're just not generating uh, power the way that you thought you would be because the wind is just not that good. You can have these, um, you know, weather patterns that can last for five years and, you know, you just might not be generating the way you thought you would for, you know, for an extended period of time. You know, on average, if the project lasts for 30 years, it should even out. But, um, you know, that's always a risk. There's also a lot of operations and maintenance risk. Um, you, know, you need to make sure that your turbines are operating and they're out in the ocean and, uh, you know, they're being hit by storms and, and waves and sea spray and all sorts of stuff. So you have to keep them in working order, of course. Um, you know, if uh, we're talking about maybe, you know, 10 or 12 megawatt turbines being put out, if, you know, or being deployed, if, if one of them breaks, then you're missing out on uh, you know, 12 megawatts of generation for that entire period that's down. So, you know, there's certainly risks and one risk that's important to note as well and what's happening in Europe is that there is this, um, you know, just because you have a 20 year contract, the project might last, you know, 30 years or more. And so there are some assumptions that developers are making about long term power prices and what kind of revenue they're going to be seeing after that contract expires. And in the case of Europe, you may have heard um, some discussion of what's called zero subsidy offshore wind projects. Essentially, they're just saying. We don't even, you know, want a fixed price. We'll just take what the power prices are, and that, of course, uh, is a risky proposition uh, and depends uh, on what power prices are going to be. And in the long run, U.S. power prices, you know, are not going to be the same as what they are in Europe. And so, if they are going to be lower here in the long run, as um, you know, as it's likely to be the case, then you might need to pack more of that revenue into that initial contract instead of relying on the uh, the merchant tail to make up some of that revenue. How about political risk? Maybe that's sort of the, the wrong way to say it, but, but if you think about uh, oil and gas, there, there's discussions that seems, you know, almost every new, new president talks about, you know, the advantages or disadvantages of drilling for oil and gas off the East Coast. Um, and, and now we're citing wind off the East Coast. Is there something that that and I, was it Cape Wind uh, years ago that met with backlash and maybe maybe didn't move ahead at all? Is is that attitude changing? Absolutely, got that right. Cape Wind was proposed. I think I was in high school. Uh, I was, uh, you know, I'm from Boston, and so I remember that being in the news. And uh, yeah, that project ended up. It even got those long-term contracts I was discussing. It had PPAs in hand. And uh, ultimately, the project was canceled, and uh, those um, contracts were canceled. So um, a lot has changed. But the states have gone from being sort of against offshore wind because of the impact it might have on views, you know, from you know, Cape Cod or or wherever else. And now that the proposals are to put them um, much further out uh, to sea and use much larger turbines that are also more efficient and, you know, quite frankly, much more cost effective than Cape Wind ever promised to be. And as people have realized that the alternative for a decarbonized grid is really more development onshore and especially more transmission onshore, 
the calculus has changed quite a bit, and now offshore wind, at least at the state level for now, is is considered kind of the um, the more popular political choice in the Northeast. But there's always chance for political risk. It could be that costs just come in too high and politicians balk at it, it or ratepayers balk at it. It could be that you know fishermen are unhappy with the impact it has on fisheries. There could be Department of Defense concerns about the Navy or the Air Force. There could be issues about shipping channels. And all these things are currently being assessed. And there is actually a little bit of an issue right now where the federal government is taking a bit longer than anticipated to um, do the environmental impact statement for one of these first projects, uh, which is called Vineyard Wind, and will supply 800 megawatts uh, of power to Massachusetts. And they're legally able to go until spring uh, with this assessment, but it was kind of thought that they would be done by now. And um, the reason that's important is because there's some nuance involving tax credits, which is maybe more in depth than we need to go right now. But essentially, if they were able to get that um, project under construction this year, uh, it would it would help that um, company uh, that's developing it make sure that they qualify for all the tax credits that they anticipated qualifying for. So, you know, that's a form of political risk right there. It might not be malicious, but it's just the government doing its due diligence and, and taking its time, and that can put projects at risk as well. All right. Well, Max, on the state level, and you mentioned Florida maybe not having uh, as good a wind as some of the, the, the northern Atlantic states. Gulf of Mexico has obviously been a hotbed for oil and gas in the same way that North Sea was. Or it, and the uh, Gulf of Mexico, you know, states, Louisiana and Texas in particular, have been more accommodating of a, a visible energy presence off their coast. Can we expect to see more of an offshore wind uh, presence in the traditional Gulf of Mexico uh, oil and gas bed, or is that, do we not have the wind that one would prefer? Well, the wind resource is not bad, um, particularly uh, in Southern Texas, but the competition in terms of not just wholesale power prices, but also uh, what you can do onshore. You know, Texas, West Texas and the Texas Panhandle has excellent wind resource and you know solar is a growing technology there as well. And so does offshore wind really merit all the added cost to you know, go offshore? And uh, in our view, probably not so much. We are trying to think about some really deep decarbonization scenarios. And so in some of those scenarios, we do uh, model what the impact of offshore wind in the Gulf of Mexico would be. But in our base case outlook, well, what we call the rivalry outlook. Um, we don't uh, think that there will necessarily be a, a, a good case for offshore wind in those markets. There is interest in the Southeast though. Um, Dominion, uh, a big uh, utility in Virginia has announced uh, that they're interested in uh, building offshore wind. You know, they're not really the deep South. Uh, they're, they're still in a, a competitive wholesale market, um, unlike some of those um, deep south uh, utilities. But that could be an indicator that some of those southern utilities, like Southern Power, for example, or, or Duke, might be interested in also developing offshore wind um, off of Georgia or the Carolinas. And I know earlier in this podcast, you'd asked about the West Coast, and I, I think we got diverted and didn't mention to talk about it. But we do think that there's a good case for offshore wind on the West Coast. Uh, the challenge there is the waters are extremely deep and they get deep very quickly. Uh, it's right on the continental shelf. And so when I was talking about Equinor's uh, investment in floating offshore wind, any installations out on the West Coast would have to be floating. And so that's really the main holdup there, that and also some, some constraints on the transmission grid. Um, but it, it's really the water depths. And so 
we think that, you know, as California and, and other Western states really look to decarbonize the grid, uh, offshore wind will complement really nicely in, in terms of when it generates during the day, all the solar that they already have uh, in, in those uh, states. And um, they just need to get that floating technology to a point where it's cost competitive uh, with, um, it's funny to say traditional offshore wind since it's still a, a nascent industry, but essentially the offshore wind fixed bottom technology that we've seen to date. Okay. And you said it you know, earlier that, that we're at what, 22 gigawatts today? What was that right? Um, uh, yep. Uh, yeah, around the world. And that's, you know, like I said, mostly Europe and also China, as you rightly pointed out. And then the, the markets where there'll be a lot of growth, um, some of the emerging markets, it, it's actually other parts of Europe. So the Baltic Sea, France, the Mediterranean, these are areas that haven't really seen development to date, but um, should in the, in the future. The United States, of course, like we've been talking about, the Northeast and, and eventually the West Coast. Um, and also a lot of Asia, not just China, but also Taiwan, South Korea, and um, you know Japan is also looking at it, especially since the uh, Fukushima nuclear incident. But you know they'll sort of be somewhat distinct markets, each with their own sort of policy landscape and each with their own uh, supply chain. Okay. And so where do you see? I mean, you mentioned Orsted, and we talked about Equinor. Where are some other? Where where are the opportunities for for firms, whether it be? ENP or even some of the service companies. We see GE, I think, is providing the turbines to uh, one of those projects. It may have been the Empire project. Mm. Um, where, where do we see opportunities for, for players to, to enter this space? Yeah, there's a lot of opportunities. Um, so, like Equinor and Orsted and, you know, and Shell, they're all looking to own the projects. And that's, of course, one route. Um, and you, you make your money selling the electrons. But there's lots of space throughout the value chain. So some of those um, Gulf Coast companies have actually been involved in and want to be involved in the offshore wind industry. So even if it's not built out there, the foundations for those first five turbines that are in Rhode Island actually came from the Gulf Coast. So there's some opportunities for um, service companies and manufacturers that um, currently participate in the oil and gas industry to get involved. About half of the um, capex uh, for an offshore wind project comes from the the turbines and the foundations, and you know the turbines are kind of mostly accounted for. Um, you know GE or, or Siemens or or Vestas. You know one of them is going to make the turbines, but there's lots of opportunity in terms of foundations, cables, um, you know controls, and and also services, of course, um, providing vessels. You know all of that is a. a those are different areas and and when you're talking about these as you know multi-billion dollar projects each um even a small share of the capex can be quite a lot of money all right well and, and chris maybe just to, to to wrap it up before uh jessica kind of brings us home but but are there are there any other upstream operators or players that we should be watching we've talked a, a lot about um you know for, formerly orsid and and equinor um you know are there some other players with, with uh, interest or ambition or, 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 you know, core competencies here? Sure. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. You know, there, there's certainly been some other, uh, companies within the, uh, you know, traditional oil and gas space that have been participating in the sector, not, not really to the same extent as Equinor, but, you know, still some participation, um, with varying levels of, um, of involvement here. So the names that come to mind right now, uh, Shell would be, uh, another big one. So they have the, um, they participate in the Nord Z wind, 
uh, offshore wind development, which has been um, on stream since 2006. Uh, they're also developing the Blauwind project, which is uh, currently in development offshore in the Netherlands. Um, Repsol would be another one. Um, they're currently developing the, the Windfloat Atlantic project uh, offshore Portugal. Uh, and then among the NOCs, you also have uh, CNUC, which, which recently got back into the space. So those would be the kind of the biggies right now. Um, there's a few other names that are sort of involved in earlier stages, whether it's in the exploratory or the, the evaluation stage. Uh, but uh, on the global integrated side, Total and ENI uh, have both been involved. And then uh, among NOCs, uh, we have Petrobras, ONGC, and um, Korean National Oil Corporation, all sort of getting involved in the early stages there. Uh, and then we, uh, you know, Max mentioned the, the service sector. Um, actually, Acker Solutions has also participated in the space. So they made a direct investment in principal power a few years back alongside uh, Repsol, um, which uh, provides solutions to uh, offshore uh, wind developments. So, you know, some varying levels of involvement here, but, you know, Generally, you know, large scale involvement would be, you know, kind of limited to the uh, the global integrated, especially those with that offshore expertise. So, you know, you think about names like like Equinor and, and Shell, you know, it certainly makes sense. Um, but other names like like BP or, or uh, Total could certainly get involved there as well uh, in, in um, bigger increments. But but again, Equinor is kind of the for now, at least sort of the the uh, outlier as far as the, the level of engagement and level of investment that they've um, they've placed in the sector. Let me just. Add on to that. I mean, in terms of discussion about Shell, you know, they've announced that they want to be the world's largest generator of power uh, in 15 years, and um, they actually have two different joint ventures uh, in the United States to develop offshore wind. So they're definitely jumping right in. And um, you know, for all these companies, it doesn't have to end with offshore wind. Um, you know, this is an area where you can, an oil and gas company can bring its expertise to bear in the offshore wind industry. In some ways, they have more expertise to bring than an onshore wind developer because so much of the development is just so different. You know, the turbines are also very different. You, you think that they're just a scaled up version of what's onshore, but that, that's not exactly the case. They are, you know, really custom made for an offshore environment. So, um, you know, you can get your start there and then uh, potentially jump in to onshore wind and solar, which is what Orsted has done as well. They, you know, again, were, uh, uh, an oil and gas company became an offshore wind company, and now they actually do onshore wind development in the United States as well. So, um, you know, there's a potential route there uh, to have a whole green portfolio, um, potentially starting with offshore wind and then moving to other technologies. All right. Well, this has been a, uh, a great discussion, and I, I know I'm, uh, I could keep going for, for, for longer, but the clock on the wall says it's time to wrap up. So, uh, thanks, uh, Max and Chris, for, for joining us. Jessica, you have any last thoughts or questions? No, I think that was a really good overview of, of where we're headed. And um, it sounds like the space is changing quickly. So Max, we'll, we'll be looking to you to maybe give us some more insights as we move forward on how this energy transition, how offshore is, is impacting the energy transition moving forward as well. Absolutely. Thanks for having me on. Yeah. And I, as, we, um, as we close out, I can't skip my favorite question of every podcast, right, Hill? <laughs> That's right. I think mean, um, Chris gets a pass this week, right? Yeah, yeah. Chris gets a pass. We'll, we'll give him one this time. But Max, we, <laughs> we like to end our podcast on a light note. <laughs> Usually we're talking about oil and gas um, and some heavy topics. Uh, so if you could tell us, you know, if you could have a drink, lemonade, beer, or dinner with anyone, historical figure or current figure, who might you sit down with? Oh man, that's a 
That is a tricky question. Um, and I was warned that there would be a surprise question, but not what it was going to be. <laughs> um, let's see. I would say um, I want to say someone a little more interesting than just the usuals, you know. So I'm, I'm going to skip, you know, Lincoln and Napoleon and all of those folks. And I'll say um, I found um, Frances Perkins is very interesting. She was the first female cabinet member uh, under Roosevelt, and she was the Secretary of Labor and had a really fascinating life. And um, so I think she would be interesting to get a drink with. Oh, that's a good answer. Uh, and Lincoln has been uh, mentioned before, so, so he's busy. I, I wouldn't turn down Lincoln, let me make it clear. Uh, but, uh, you know, maybe he can come to the party as well. <laughs> as a Houstonian, and Chris is a baseball fan, I was hoping you were going to say Garrett Cole, uh, but he's got plans for the next couple weeks anyway, or at least this week. Um, yeah, as a, a Boston fan, uh, we're, we're sitting out this year. <laughs> I, I make it a point not to discuss sports anymore with uh, Bostonians. So, uh, yeah, I'm going to exclude myself from this conversation. I will say I'm, I'm winning our office uh, uh, football pool right now. And uh, my strategy is just, you know, pick the Patriots as much as possible. <laughs> All right. Great. Well, Max, Chris, thank you for joining us. Hill, thanks again for another good conversation. And um, thanks to all of our listeners for um, joining us on another podcast. Yeah, thanks, everybody. I hope you enjoyed today's podcast. To read additional insights from our team of experts, visit our blog at www.ihsmarket.com slash energy blog. Also, if you haven't checked us out on social media, please search for IHS Market Energy on either Twitter or LinkedIn. This podcast contains information and insights copyrighted by IHS Market. To learn more about IHS Market Energy Solutions, visit ihsmarket.com energy. That's ihsmarkit.com forward slash energy.